Romans 15 begins with, we then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Now, out of context, you can obviously see that that's part of a bigger discussion. He introduces the strong and the weak and the relationship between the strong and weak. He introduces that back in the beginning of chapter 14, where he's opened up this can of worms, you could say, with the church in Rome regarding differences of opinion about things, differences of tradition or differences of practice. Remember, in the church in Rome, you had people of Jewish background, and the Jewish background people would come with all different kinds of regulations that they'd grown up with, all different kinds of food regulations and days of the week regulations and festivals and all that that they would come with into the church. And then you had the pagan or the Gentiles. Remember, the word Gentile just means everybody who's not a Jew, the rest of the world. So you had the Jews and you had the non-Jews. The non-Jews didn't have any of those strict regulations that the Jews would have come with. So in the body of Christ, our backgrounds, different cultures, differences of opinion or tradition, that can cause some controversy, can cause some division. We talked about that over the last few weeks. We've been in Romans. We talked about things like, what we wear to church, what kind of Bible we read, what kind of music, can I listen to secular music or not? Can I get a tattoo or not? What about movies? So we talked about all these things we would call debatable issues. Can a Christian have a glass of wine with dinner? And we talked about those things. So go back and you can listen to previous messages about that. You see, there are certain things that are not debatable, which by the way, we debate about. But there are things that biblically are not debatable. If a person says, well, by the grace of God, I have the liberty to drink to the point of drunkenness. The Bible clearly says, God clearly says, no, you don't. That is not a debatable issue. What is a debatable issue is, can I have a glass of wine? Some say yes, some say no. Those types of things Paul is speaking about. And ultimately he said, you know, to them, look, stop judging and criticizing the nun, the shirt and tie wearers are judging as too informal, the informal dressers and the informal dressers are judging as too stiff, the tie and jacket wearers. And you have all of this conflict that can happen because of these non-essential opinions or traditions. So Paul kind of laid out all of the principles to do with that coming through chapter 14. And chapter 15 kind of finishes and ties the little ribbon around his argument about how to bring vastly different people together to the glory of God in the body of Christ. So chapter 15 goes back to, we then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Mark Twain is famously quoted as having said, it ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand. (laughs) And chapter 15 fits right into that quote. A quick little outline just to show you what Paul is doing with this last section. First, he's going to give us this principle. It comes from verses 1 and 2. We who are strong, bear with the scruples of the weak, not to please ourselves. Verse 2 says, let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. The principle, don't be selfish. Don't be selfish. That's the principle he's laying out. The proof he's going to get to in the next few verses after that The proof is Jesus wasn't 
selfish. And then he's going to finish it out with a prayer for the churches. Can you guess what his prayer is going to be? Lord, I pray that they wouldn't be selfish. So the principle, don't be selfish. The proof, Jesus wasn't selfish. And the prayer, I pray that they would not be selfish. Pretty simple, huh? Pretty easy. Again, he begins with, we then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak. In the context of the discussions in the church in Rome with these real life people that lived in Rome, the strong in Paul's thinking, and and he includes himself there, he says, we then who are strong, would be those people in the body of Christ, in the church, who kind of understand that we're saved by grace and not religious tradition. That traditions are not right nor wrong in and of themselves, they're traditions, but they don't save us. There's nothing wrong with a certain tradition. Again, one group might have grown up thinking a certain way, feeling a certain way about something. The other group didn't grow up that way or doesn't come from that culture. You know, you can wear a suit tied to church or you can wear flip-flops and Hawaiian shirt. Your clothes, what you wear on the outside doesn't impress God. God doesn't look at the outside. You can get a tattoo if you want, but God doesn't see it. God looks where? God looks at the heart. So you might decide, well, I'm going to get a tattoo and it's going to be an evangelistic message to somebody else. You know, maybe what the tattoo is of has more significance than whether or not you have one. But again, you're not doing that for the Lord. The Lord's looking at the heart, not the skin. So the strong person recognizes that those are not matters of salvation. Those are not matters of sin or morality. The morality part of those questions, again, what the tattoo is of or those kind of things, that has more significance than that you have a tattoo or not. Again, the strong say, hey, we're saved by the grace of God, so we have some liberty in those areas. We can exercise some freedom. The weak are those that still feel this pull and draw toward legalism, that somehow if I don't do this certain thing a certain way, then God is somehow going to be not pleased with me and I'm going to get punished. Maybe you felt that way. Maybe if you've grown up going to a legalistic church that you have to wear a certain kind of clothes, that if you don't wear that certain kind of clothes, that somehow God is going to be mad at you and he's going to judge you or condemn you. Then you've missed the point of grace. You've misunderstood. So we have in the church the weak and the strong. Any community that you're part of, be it a classroom or a sports team, you're always going to have people that are at different places, right? In the math class, we had when I was growing up a team called the Mathletes. Anybody else have that in their school? These were like the math pros, the Isaac Newton juniors that were just great at math. Can anybody guess whether or not Pastor Steve was on the Mathletes team? (laughs) Now, why are you laughing? Right, I was not a Mathlete. Uh, (laughs) They did not. And if I was, I'd have been on the bench for sure. But, you know, in math class, you've got people that just have the math kind of mind, and then you have other kids just kind of trying to get by. And on the soccer field or the football field or the baseball field, you've got those kids that just have mad skills. And you got kids that are just trying to figure out what base to run to next. They want to go right and not left. So you've got in a community people that are in different places. In the church community, come on, church, tell me you know that in this room, we have people that are at different places with the Lord. We have people in this church that have been walking with the Lord for 50 or 60 years and can read the Bible in a few languages. And then we have people that are just trying to get over the anxiety of coming in the front doors and being in this room and didn't even own a Bible before 
last week. So we've got people at different places, people that are weaker in the faith. They've just not been walking with the Lord as long and those that are stronger in the faith. So Paul, he tells us how to look at that relationship with the strong and the weak. And he doesn't put the responsibility on the weak, does he? He's speaking to the strong. He says, we who are strong have an obligation. That's what the word ought means. The strong have an obligation to bear with, to carry the burden of the weak. To bear means to put on a burden, to put it on, take it on yourself. You see, Paul is saying the principle is, if you're that strong as a Christian, you should be strong enough to lift someone else's burden and to carry it with them. Whatever that burden is, again, for them, it was this holding on to legalistic practices in their church. The opposite of that is to please ourselves. So the choice you have is to say, hey, there's someone in the church just a little weaker in their faith. Now, what we would say is, well, that weak person ought to get with the program. The weak person is the person who is responsible to get up to speed, to saddle up, to figure it out. That's American culture. We have a hard time with this because people should get what they deserve. I got where I got. I'm strong because I worked hard and I figured it out. And now you should do the same. That's the American way. And that's why Paul is trying to rewire their brains to rewire our brains because we live in a toxic, individualistic American culture. Try in school classrooms. How many of you are teachers in here? I know there's a few teachers in here. How's it go now when you give kids a group project and give them a group grade on the group project? How's that work out in the American classroom? We have a hard time with that because I want to be graded based on my performance, not based on how the group did because someone in the group might drag me down. I mean, I'm in kindergarten for crying out loud. I got to get a good grade because I'm going to Harvard. I'm going to be an engineer and an astronaut or whatever, and that's all fine and well. But the American way is me first, my needs, I'm going places, I'm doing things, get out of my way, get on board or get out of my way because I got things to do. And it's killing us. It's killing us socially. You may achieve your ambition, but you're going to do it alone unless you learn what Paul is saying here, that the real demonstration of strength is not the fulfillment of your own selfish ambition. The real demonstration of strength is being strong enough to put aside what you want or think you need to help someone else who is not where you are. Are we with Paul on this? I mean, we were just on vacation together and I happen to be stronger at bicycling than I am at swimming. And my wife happens to be stronger at swimming than she is bicycling. And we're both doing these things together. So I have a responsibility to her not to leave her in the dust, although I was so tempted to. I know, bad pastor, but it's just, I'm a competitive spirited guy. And when I like to ride as fast as I can. So what I started doing was, see, my wife doesn't like to ride. She doesn't like the hills. She likes the downhills, but not the uphills. So what I learned is that when we come to an uphill, I can ride up alongside her and grab her by her biking shorts and pull her up the hill. I can bear her burden up that hill. Now, we haven't figured out how that works for me in swimming yet. We haven't worked that out because she starts to drag me along. But the point is, is that we're doing these things together. And because of that, there's a sensitivity 
to some areas where she's weaker or I'm weaker. And in those areas where I'm stronger, she's weaker, we have to be sensitive to each other. And I can't leave her in the dust and she can't leave me in the dust. So to do this thing called church together, which is the real success, we have to be sensitive to what Paul is saying here, that we need to bear with the weaknesses. Scruples just means weaknesses of mind. Someone's just not there yet to bear with the weaknesses and not to please ourselves. See, the obligation is to the strong and not to the weak. Some of you know over the years, I've had somewhat of a fascination with the idea of climbing Mount Everest. Anybody else like just think that that's an interesting, intriguing thing? Like I would never do it first because I couldn't afford to because you know it costs about $40,000 to climb Everest now. That's the average cost, about $40,000. And there's more and more and more people that are signing up and engaging in this attempt to do this activity that's summit Mount Everest, highest place on the face of the earth. But what this brings about, it turns out, is an interesting ethical dilemma. The article I read is called Mount Everest, the Ethical Dilemma Facing Climbers. You see, not only does it cost $40,000, but it's fatiguing and a lot of people are there now and it's creating at one time 200 people on a day when the weather is just right and the conditions are just right. All the groups there may decide to summit on the same day. You could have as many as 200 people all holding onto a single rope in a single file line going 10 kilometers at 29,000 feet in the air on top of Mount Everest. And you're sucking oxygen that you have and the oxygen runs out. So six to eight deaths occur every season from people trying to summit Everest. The ethical dilemma is this. Leanna Shuttleworth, age 19, and her father, Mark, headed for the 29,035-foot summit on May 19th and 20th. Up to 200 others had the same idea. Six of them that day lost their lives. She said there were quite a few bodies attached to the fixed lines, and we had to walk around them. There were also a couple who were still alive. She describes coming across one man who she assumed had perished. As we passed, he raised his arm and looked at us. He didn't know anyone was there, that you become somewhat delirious from the altitude and running out of oxygen. And Because not only do you have to summit, but you also have to get back down. As we passed, he raised his arm, looked at us. He didn't know anyone was there. He was almost dead, and he was dead when we came back down. The debate around ethics on Everest has raged since 2006, at a time when an estimated 40 climbers passed by a dying British mountaineer named David Sharp without stopping. A week later, a U.S. climber named Don Mazur and his team gave up their own summit bid to coordinate the rescue of an abandoned Australian named Lincoln Hall. He survived. So, I mean, picture yourself. There you are. You've paid $40,000. This could be your one opportunity of a lifetime. The summit is right there, and you come across a dying person. You may never get another chance at this, and now you have a dilemma. You have an ethical, moral decision. Do I pursue my own desire, my own pleasure, what I've worked for, what I've prayed for, my own ambition, and I get to that summit so I can go home and show everybody the pictures and tell the story about how I summoned at Everest? Or do I give up what I want for the sake of someone else who's in a weakened, debilitated condition to help them save their life? Well, this is why the ethical debate rages regarding Mount Everest On the weekend, the Shuttleworth reached the summit. An Israeli climber, Nadav Ben Yehuda, carried a Turkish-born American climber. So he got an Israeli and a Turkish-born American. His name was Aiden Ermak. 
He carried him to safety on his back for eight hours. See, he was strong, wasn't he? Strong enough to carry the burden of a weaker climber on his back to save his life. Two guys, Chris and Simon Holloway, who are seasoned climbers, said, can it ever be right for climbers to carry on to the summit while there are living people dying behind them? I say that to say that's just simply climbing something like Mount Everest and earthly ambition. But what about the church? You see, I've met people over the years in ministry who are all concerned about their own spiritual summit, my prayer meeting, my experience, my worship. And you might want to summit spirituality. I got to be close to God. You will never be closer to God than when you lay down your own needs to disciple or help somebody else who might be weaker than you. It's a great need in the church. This is the heart and the root of discipleship. Those that have been walking with the Lord longer, saying, hey, I'm going to come along beside somebody else and help them in their time of need, in their time of weakness. See, that involves relationship. See, it's easy to come to a prayer meeting. It's easy to come to a Bible study for my own personal growth. The challenge is getting involved in someone else's yuck and someone else's drama to be there with them when family life is falling apart or addiction is crushing or a job is lost or a diagnosis has happened to be with people in their time of need, in their time of weakness. He says, verse two, let each of us please his neighbor for his good leading to edification. The word edification means something that promotes growth. Can I ask you a question? If you consider yourself, I'm a pretty strong Christian. Who is it in your life whose growth you are promoting besides your own? How do I do that? How do I promote somebody else's growth? You have to build a relationship with them. And that's where we struggle. See, the world is so superficial and so ambitious. I don't have time for deep relationships. I'm going places. I'm doing things. But in the church, it's not supposed to be that way. So you have to develop a relationship with somebody else who is weaker than you or you perceive to be weaker than you. And then you come alongside them, not for your own good, but for their own good to build you up. And what you find out is you're both built up from that. It's very encouraging to both of you. But Steve, Paul is saying, let each of us please his neighbor. I thought people pleasing was a bad thing in the Bible. And you're right. People-pleasing is a bad thing when it's done for personal validation or approval. But Paul doesn't say, let each of us please his neighbor for his approval, does he? He says, let each of us please his neighbor for his good. It might cost you something to do that. What happens in the body of Christ when people do that? You want to destroy a community? Live selfishly. Destroy a community in a heartbeat. No community That's why Facebook communities are so popular, because I actually don't have to be selfless. I can engage in a pseudo-community without ever actually having to give anything of myself. And those are the American mindsets. But when we come to church, we have to say, you know, this is a different place. We are not the animal kingdom where we eat our young and where we pray on the weak. We are the heavenly kingdom where we build up the weak. And we all win when we do that. That's what Paul's saying. Jew and Gentile, we all win when we have this attitude. Well, what's the proof? He says, verse three, for even Christ did not please himself. I mean, God in the flesh did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for you. 
So if we're going to call ourselves Christians, he says, don't believe me. Paul says, I'm not just making this up. He said, Christ is the example. Can you imagine Christ coming to please himself? That he would come to just do what he want, what made him happy? He came completely for you and for me. Matter of fact, my mind went right to Isaiah 53. It's a well-known passage. Isaiah 53 says, Surely he, the Messiah, the Savior, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So here they are, let's say in Rome, going, you know what? I know I'm a Christian, but man, I can't live without my glass of wine. I just can't do it. I can't live without my meat. You know, the Jews freaking out because they don't know where the meat was prepared kosher. And the Gentiles going, well, I got to have my steak. I can't live without my steak. And Paul going, really? Are you kidding me? Like all that Christ has done for you and you can't live without your steak? And for me, it was the plane ride home. We're sitting on their plane, getting ready to take off. We started our travel about 11 o'clock in the morning, didn't really get to have lunch. We get on the plane, I'm ready for the snack, right? Come down the aisle, the orange juice and the snack. Then the announcement comes on. Oh, by the way, on today's flight, there will be no peanuts. I said, what? I said, turn to Helga, did she just say no peanuts? I've been looking forward to peanuts all morning. I love my peanuts on the plane. I always ask for an extra bag of peanuts on the plane. No peanuts. And not only no peanuts, but nobody who happened to inadvertently bring peanuts could eat them. Because it turns out there was someone, some weak person, a weak, inconsiderate person with a peanut allergy on my flight. Can you believe the nerve? So we laugh. Because we see how ridiculous that sounds when I say it, right? Some weak peanut allergy person affecting my ability to have peanuts. Doesn't that sound crazy? Like Steve, evidently they were severely allergic because they said, like, no peanuts anywhere on the plane. So I'm like, I had to go with pretzels instead. But a small price to pay for their life, right? So now we bring that to church and we go, you know, what am I really giving up? For that person, for their need. See, let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to his or her progress. Even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you, God, fell on me. See, he quotes Psalm 69, I believe that is. And he says, look, Jesus was the example. It's written in this messianic Psalm, Psalm 69, that all of the insults hurled at God All the insults hurled at Jesus were all people angry at God, don't want God. And Jesus took all that on himself. Philippians chapter 2 said he made himself of no reputation. He came in human form, became a, a servant, and then died a humiliating death on the cross. All of the reproaches of humanity, all of the filth, the iniquity, the twistedness of human humanity, all poured out on Christ. And he took it all on himself. In a sense, as Christians... We, like Christ, are called to be sin bearers. Did you know that? We're called to bear with the weaknesses, the sins of other people. Patiently enduring through that. 
He says, whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we, through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. So he says, Psalm 69 wasn't just for people that lived at the time when Psalm 69 was written. He said, Psalm 69 is written for you and for me today in the church so that we can have what Paul is promising or what God is promising, the patience and comfort of the Scriptures that give us hope. Because you might look around at the world and go, man, I don't have much hope for the world. Everything is splintering nowadays. American culture, splintering, Republican, Democrat, no one can get along. Everybody has their agenda. And, and even the church. You know, there's an old joke that kind of makes sense with this, where a guy dies and he goes to heaven and he's getting the tour of heaven, right? You know jokes are not theologically accurate. So he's getting this tour of heaven and they come by the first room and he sees all these people in there and he goes, well, who's in that room? And the angel who's given to us says, oh, that's the Baptist there in that room. And then they walk a little farther, and there's another room with a bunch of people in it. Those are the Methodists over there. Walk a little farther and come to another room. Those are the Catholics. And then the angel says, now, listen, we're going to go by this next room, but we need you to be really quiet with the tiptoe by this next room. So they tiptoe by the next room, and he sees some people in there, and they walk by. And then after they get by, he says to the angel, why, why did we have to tiptoe by that room. He said, well, that's the room where all the people from Calvary Chapel are, and they think they're the only ones here. <laughs> so I have to put that joke on us, because if I put it on anybody else, then I get emails back. But you understand the meaning, right? You understand the sentiment. Whatever things were written before were for our learning, that we, through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. We recognize that as we read the Scriptures, the way people have lived in the past, the selflessness of people in the past in the Bible. We're about to study the book of Ruth, and we think about Ruth in the Old Testament and how she gave up her possibility of leaving Naomi and getting married to just be with Naomi, who in her bitter time of trouble and tragedy, she says, look, I'm going to stay with you. And we go, wow, there's something special about that. The patience and the comfort of the Scriptures, that we can have hope. We see a heaven where there's people from all different tribes, all different cultures, all worshiping together. We as the church, the local church, get to give the world a picture of what heaven is like when we come together not seeking what we want for ourselves, but looking to build each other up. Then people go, man, how in the world do you do that? The world can't figure that out. But notice where this comes from, the patience and comfort of the scriptures. I can tell you it's almost a direct correlation when I'm involved with a person in situation, a conflict, when there's selfishness is obvious and evident and roaring, I can ask the simple question, have you been in the Word? And almost 100%, the answer is no. When you are not in the Word, selfishness grows. When you get in the Word and you're seeing the selfless nature of Christ and the selfless nature of His followers, then it breeds selflessness in yourself. And that's why Paul says that he reads Psalm 69 and he gets it. He says, here's an example, and you're meant to do the same thing. You're meant to read the Bible, Old and New Testament, and watch and learn from these lessons that were for our learning so that you can have the patient endurance and the encouragement that come from reading the Scriptures. Now, may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So now we get to Paul's prayer. 
I pray that you guys in Rome, that you guys in Fluvanna would be like-minded toward one another. That you would each be looking out for each other. For marriages, you want to destroy a marriage? Be selfish. You want to destroy a family? Be selfish. One of the banners over our home is through love, serve one another. Not through love, get your own needs met. When my wife is through love serving me, then my needs get met. And when I am through love serving her, then her needs get met. It works still. It works better than trying to get your own needs met all the time. So through love, serve one another. And when he's asking the church in Rome, hey, you guys, my prayer is that you would not be selfish, that you would care for each other in the same way. And then you can with one mouth, not divided. By the way, by the way, by the way, did you notice that Paul doesn't say in verse one, we then who are strong ought to just get our own church. We'll call it the first church of the strong and we'll let the weak people figure it out themselves. He doesn't say, well, you know what? Between Jew and Gentile, look, you guys are just too different. You think black and white tensions in America were tough? Jew-Gentile tensions, really tough. The Jews hated the Gentiles because the Gentiles for centuries and millennia had persecuted the Jew. The Egyptians had them enslaved. The Assyrians carried them off enslaved. The Babylonians conquered them. The Romans themselves had conquered them. So the Jews hated the Gentiles. You couldn't have any more different people. And Paul doesn't say, you know what? Look, let's just do this. will be a lot easier. Rather than the whole loving your neighbor for his good thing, let's forget that. And let's just have the Jewish messianic Christian church over here where you guys can still do your thing. And let's have the non-Jewish church over here. And we'll just do that. And that'll be a lot easier. And we won't have to really mess with that. He doesn't say that, does he? He says the Jewish believers and their traditions and their regulations you guys should be able to worship with the non-Jewish believers as you're sensitive and patient with each other. To me, that sounds a lot better because that is what with one mind and one mouth glorifies God. When people see radically different people, black and white and Hispanic from all over, from different cultures, all coming together in one family and really loving each other, God is glorified. But when we bicker and fight and argue over opinions and traditions, God is not glorified. Look, the world is looking for the church to be what we say we are. Don't you think that's true? We spend more time trying to undo people's perception of what the church is because they've had some bad experience or bad situation or they've been involved in a church where there's fighting and all of that stuff. And we got to undo all that. I got to plead with people. No, no, no. That's not what church is supposed to be. This is what church is supposed to be. With one mouth and one mind glorifying God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, therefore, verse 7, therefore receive or welcome or embrace one another. Not divide from one another, but embrace one another. Just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Look, when Christ received you, God was glorified. Amen? I mean, there's a lot of people that did not want to receive you. There's a lot of places you ain't welcome. But God says, look, if they're not welcome anywhere else, I'll welcome them. I'll take them. And man, I don't know what you were like when you got saved, but you weren't perfect. I know that. When I got saved, man, I needed a brainwashing. My brain was a mess. 
my life was twisted. And God took me right there. And look, here's what we count on at Calvary Chapel. I count on, I want to pastor a church that I would attend if I wasn't the pastor. And that means that I want to be able to invite people here that are a mess, that are weak and struggling and hurting. And when I invite them here and they come in those doors, that those of us that are strong, that have been in the Word, are going to embrace and help build them up. If they're smoking their cigarette and putting it out on the concrete out there that you're not going to, oh, they're smoking, saw them smoking cigarettes. Can you believe that? They're not there yet. They're not where you are yet. So that doesn't mean we put them down. That means we got to build them up. That means maybe that's the person I need to meet and go up and say, hey, my name is Steve. Who are you? Tell me your story. Therefore, he says, welcome one another. That's what he started with in chapter 14, verse 1, just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Right where we were, right how we were. Now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written, for this reason I will confess you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. So he's going to give us more and more Bible quotes to prove what he's saying. He's showing the Jews that the Gentiles and the Jews have a place in God's kingdom to worship together. And when Jesus comes and does that, it is merely fulfilling what God had promised to Abraham. They loved Abraham. They were connected to Abraham. Like, yeah, we're children of Abraham. So Paul takes it back. He says, you want to talk about Abraham? We'll talk about him. He says that Jesus Christ became a servant to, did you notice that? To the circumcision. That's a synonym for the Jews because they were known for their practice of circumcising on the eighth day. Do you know where that practice goes back to? goes back to Genesis chapter 17. And it's in the context of, it's a symbol of the commitment, the promises that God made to Abraham. Do you know what those promises were? No? Well, I'm glad that you don't know because now you'll learn something new. I'll tell you what they were. In chapter 17, right before God introduces them to this practice of circumcision as a sign of the covenant, It says, uh, verse 2, I will make my covenant between me and you, Abraham, and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abraham fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of, does anybody know what the next two words might be? Many nations. Many nations. So God would work in the Jew first, but then his message would go to all the world and it all goes back even to connection to their circumcision, even back to God's promise to Abraham to make him a father of many nations. And that's what he's saying, that God is just in this fulfilling his promises. And then he goes on and on and he builds up these verses to show that in welcoming Gentiles and giving them the hand of fellowship, God is just fulfilling his promises. Verse 10 says, and again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, not apart from his people. Rejoice world with God's people, the Jews. Deuteronomy 32, 43. Verse 11, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Again, the whole world. Loud him, all you peoples. Psalm 17, verse 1. And then verse 12, he says, and again, Isaiah says, there shall be a root of Jesse. That's Jesus. Comes from the line of Jesse of David. And he who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, in him the Gentiles shall hope or trust. So this whole idea of Jew and Gentile being in one fellowship in Rome 
or in Fluvanna has huge ramifications for the whole world and for the future of the kingdom of God. You see the bigger picture Paul is hinting at? This goes to God ruling and reigning over the whole earth. And we get to be a microcosm of that right here in Fluvanna. We get to be a small picture of the kingdom of God right here in our own community when we welcome one another into the fellowship. And he closes with prayer, verse 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I love that prayer. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. Does anybody need that by any chance? Anybody here this morning need all peace and all joy? And he recognizes that it doesn't come from you. It comes from God. He is the God, not just of patience and comfort, but the God that can fill you. He's a God of hope that fills you with joy and peace. But how does he do that? You just show up for church and get injected with joy and peace? What does he say here? That the God of hope fill you, that's filled to overflowing with all joy and peace. What are those next two words? In believing. You see, if you don't believe this, you will never have the joy and peace God has promised. Don't believe this. Don't believe what? This living a selfless, Christ-centered life. You see, the world has said you will be happy and at peace when you get all the things you need. When you finally get that ambitious thing, when you conquer that mountain, when you summit Everest, then you'll be happy. Guess what? I think it was Ravi Zacharias said, the loneliest day in a man's life when he achieves that which he thought would bring the ultimate and it only leaves him empty. He says, when you get it, when you understand that the Christian life is the selfless life, that Christ is our example, and when you believe that to the point that you start to live that, then when you give your life away, guess what happens? You finally get it. And you get all the things that you were searching for when you believe, when you trust God. I'm afraid to give my life away. I'm afraid. It's okay that you're afraid, but you got to do it anyway. But you say, pastor, I can't do it myself. You're right, you can't. That's why Paul finishes his prayer by saying that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. You can't do what you're saying. You can't have that kind of love on your own. You can't have that kind of patience on your own. You need, I need, we need what, gang? The power of the Holy Spirit. Spirit of God, you can't do it yourself. The Spirit of God has to do it through you. So, like I said, Mark Twain, it ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand. And so if you're struggling with impatience with people, selfishness, any of those things we talked about, you can be praying. Lord, I need help. I need help. I'm impatient. I'm selfish. I destroy relationships. I'm alone because of it. I got no friends because all I ever care about is how things affect me. Lord, I need a radical change in my life. You need God. You need the Holy Spirit in your life. 